Welcome back to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is a special episode where we will be interviewing one of our own, and today we are interviewing Brandon Blinson. So Brandon is one of our esteemed members. He's, uh, we joke, he is the Jordan Peterson of the group. He's the philosopher, the wise one. So uh, we're very excited to share his story with you. There's a lot of relatable moments in his, in his life where he's overcome uh, different struggles and challenges, and we hope that uh, you can learn from his experience. So this is part one of his story. I know you're going to love it, and I'd love for you guys to, to comment with your favorite parts from his story. In addition to that, please do us a massive favor. Go to your favorite platform, whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple, etc., and leave us a review. If you're on YouTube, leave a comment. And uh, if there's something that you want to see us discuss in the future, a topic or a specific guest you'd like to have on, please let us know in the comments and we will do our best to facilitate that. Um, with that said, enough talk. We're going to get into the episode and uh, hope that you really enjoy Brandon Blintz's story. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. This is the show that focuses on climbing the mountain of fatherhood together. We believe that dads matter. That's why this show is for you. So gear up, dads. Get ready. It's time to start climbing. Brandon Blinson, welcome to the Present Father <laughs> Podcast. It is such a privilege to have you as our guest tonight. How are Glad you? to be here. First podcast ever, right? First podcast <laughs> ever. Yeah, man. It's a... Uh, that's a joke for those listening. Um, Brandon, so as, as we're going through our own stories, tonight is Brandon. So we will be highlighting Brandon Blinson, uh, the podcast philosopher, our own Jordan Peterson, Light 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but yeah, Brandon, we are excited to learn from your story. And uh, before we begin, I just want to set for the audience, you know, because maybe they don't really know the real you yet, but for those of us on the podcast who are your close friends, you have been a man who has taught us so much. You push us to improve ourselves in the spiritual realm, our minds to uh, embrace new ideas. And so you're just a man who has an immense hunger for knowledge and learning, self-improvement. And that is definitely something that has washed over the rest of the guys on the podcast. And just, I just want to affirm you in that publicly here on this before we start your story. <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. You are uh, obviously a twin brother. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your early childhood and kind of upbringing and family dynamics, and we'll we'll move from there. Yeah, um, man, I had a fantastic childhood. Uh, I want to start off by saying that. Um, three brothers, two wonderful parents, um, grandparents, both together. Parents were both together, still together. Um, my grandparents just celebrated their 65th. Uh, my parents, their 45th. So um loyalty is definitely something that was ingrained into our our family um i was the second oldest right like 15 seconds behind my twin brother justin and so we were kind of the pioneers the 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 experimental children <laughs> where the parents learned you know all the things and um yeah i can relate was, yeah it was it was an amazing childhood so much so that um being an adult was hard at first because I had it so good, right? And so I have a different path than a lot of people because I, I was I was very blessed. Um, but external environmental things excluded, I had a lot of internal turmoil um, stemming from ADHD and um, just some some social misgivings, I guess you could say. So 
you know, there was a lot of lot of struggle for me in other areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, my childhood was amazing. Um, it was it was very strange, but uh, exciting being a twin because you always got called your brother's name and you just had to be used to it. Right. You just had to respond to the two names. Right. And then, um, you know, of course, when he would he, he's kind of a blabbermouth and he likes to get in fights. And so like people would come up to me trying to swing on me in high school. And it's, not, you know, like, hey, I'm not Justin. I'm Brandon. I'm the one that lays low and just focuses on school. Right. So I, I had to deal with a lot of that. But, you know, um, yeah, no. So childhood was good. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was that I was just constantly wanting to be like in solitude by myself and reading and figuring things out, like pulling things apart and putting them back together and see how they worked. And like, I just had this insatiable hunger for everything, like anything that was around me, I just wanted to pick it up. And I think that's part of the ADHD thing. Right. But, um, it's definitely something that just kept me, kept me going through my childhood for sure. Um, right. so t- tell us sure. a little bit more about like, you know, what was the, what was your family culture? Like, was it, you know, yeah. like mine was super intense. So what was your like, you know, and, and, and then yeah. within the dynamic of having so many brothers in the same household, like, you know, what was, what were the things that kind of kept Brandon going in the midst yeah. of all that? Yeah. So, um, first part, the environment, we screamed a lot, a lot of like, we just yelled and bickered and fought. We loved hard, but we fought hard. Right. Um, I think both my parents and I love them to death, but I, I don't think either one of them had a good handle on emotional regulation when it came to correcting kids. Like I just remember anytime I got in trouble, my parents would scream and then spank. And I kind of built up a wall where I walked on eggshells um, so that I didn't, I wasn't the one that got yelled at or hurt, right? Uh, my brothers were always the ones. And and thankfully, Justin was the one that opened his mouth the most. So he kind of was always on the radar and I wasn't. <laughs> I'm just being real. I love you, Justin. But oh, you you didn't you never kept that mouth shut. But um, yeah, so but but here's the crazy thing. We were very forgiving. So like we would have a knockout drag out argument where we would scream at each other and there'd be a lot of a lot of drama, as they say. But the next morning we would wake up and everybody was good. Everybody loved each other. And sometimes we would talk about it. Um, or at least I try to, and that would drive everybody crazy, but everybody else just kind of wanted to just keep it under the rug and not worry about it. So, and you know, I was okay with that. Less drama was less drama. Right. So, um, it shaped me a lot though, because like my dad, man, he was so present when we were kids, but to provide for us, he had to be gone Monday through Friday. So, you know, 75, 80% of my childhood was without my dad, even though I had a dad and he was a great dad. And, um, it was really hard for him to be emotionally present because of the trauma and the tragedy that he had in his life. Uh, he had his, his father, you know, and we'll get into this more when I interview him, but his father, passed away in front of him when he was nine. He was an alcoholic and abusive. Um, his mom was suicidal and, you know, there's a lot of things there, but, uh, yeah, so he had a lot of trauma. And so for him, he's very happy go lucky and nothing kind of really bothered him, but like he never really got deep and serious with things 
and I'm the opposite. Like I'm serious and deep about everything as y'all know. So like I, I would ask deep questions and he'd give me a very generalized answer. Right. And okay. so that was tough for me. Um, and when you say it was tough for you, sorry to cut you off, but when you say it's sure. tough for you, like, can you unpack that a little bit more? What did that yeah. mean? Like, and how did you, like, what did you do to kind of cope with that? I guess. Yeah. So for me, quality connection is like being very intellectually curious and diving deep into like having deep, meaningful conversations. Like I am a person that cannot stand surface level conversation. Like I am so I'm decent at it, but like, I'm just so pushed off by it. Like people that just have a hundred friends that they're, they barely have any depth with. I I can't stand that. I would rather have four quarters than a hundred pennies, you know? And so quality over, Quantity was always kind of my thing. And so I wanted quality with my dad, but it was really hard with three other brothers and my mom needing him and, you know, him being pulled in all these different directions on the weekend, playing catch up from being gone Monday through Friday. So it was like the connection emotionally, as much as I wanted, it wasn't there. And so I just kind of had this lone wolf solitude mentality, right? Um, I built that up and said, I fixed my own problems. And so, you know, as an adult, one of the hardest things for me to get through was the realization that when I isolate because of an issue in my life, which is dangerous, especially with somebody with anxiety and who has had depression like myself, I isolate when, when things get hard and I'm, I'm not supposed to isolate. Right. And the reason being is, is because when I was a kid, I had to solve my own problems by myself. And that was a tough thing for me to accept for a while. But eventually, through a lot of just really digging deep through it, um, I did. And it was something that made me more um, mentally and physically stronger, right? So it was a good and a bad thing. It's You know, everything like suffering in general is a, is a double-edged sword, but it was such a necessary thing, right? Because it prepares us for the path that, that we have to forge you know, in the future. Right. So, so yeah, so with my dad, it was tough. And then with my mom, bless it, she, she took care of four boys, just four wild ADHD boys, ADHD boys. Right. And so she's exhausted all the time and she lost her temper a lot. You know, she's a redhead and she's very spirited. So, you know, it was easy for her. And so, you know, the connection there was nurture. Sure. But when, again, when I wanted to have a conversation, it was really tough to not have her shut down or just get angry, right? Especially if it was something I wanted to address. And so yeah. for me, that was tough. But yeah, I mean, I turned to other things, right? Like um, learning and music and cars okay. and different stuff. Yeah, I know you, you've kind of talked about it before, even on the podcast, how you, you know, you'd kind of just go up in your room and read books and that kind of stuff. So did you, is that because you're naturally introverted or was it more of kind of just like a survival mechanism in a sense for you to kind of, there's all this going on. This is how I can kind of keep myself safe from it, I guess. Yeah, I think it was a mixture of both um, because, okay, so a little background. Um, my parents made me take like IQ tests and I, I was having to do the Mensa program and all that stuff because I was in the 150s. And so I was I was a very intelligent person uh, with a very, very sharp and keen memory. And like I read something, I remembered it. I learned something. I remembered it. I don't like, I can tell you stuff from when I was a kid, like vividly. Right. And so like 
one of the things my parents did was they saw that I had a love for learning and reading. They literally bought me encyclopedias. And I'm not kidding. I literally read it from A to F the first year, like everything. And I would just run around spitting useless facts and knowledge to my parents. And they would laugh and they would, you know, uh, reward me for it. But it was just something that, again, an insatiable hunger for that right and so yeah 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 fun fact um chat gpt all the knowledge in it is actually uh from brandon blinson that's nah, it's just out yeah. of his brain no. so that's <laughs> no no but so <laughs> that's why it's wrong a lot <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good i'm gonna have to use that but but no so so as far as going back to my peers it was really hard for me to connect with my peers socially because okay they wanted to do basketball and all this stuff and i wanted to talk about like social psychology and like things I was reading, like things that were much more out of the scope of somebody my age should have been reading and thinking about. And like, it was just things that just constantly piqued my curiosity. Right. And so, you know, there was a disconnect, a lot of attachment disorder there, you know, (laughs) but it's okay. And, you know, um, it, it pushed me and drive me to, to just be smart. Right. And just to, to, to try to push myself. And so I did. Um, that's what I did all the way up into high school. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit about high school then. So it was basically sure. more the same throughout high school or, <clears throat> I mean, I'm just trying to better understand kind of like when you weigh it all up, right? You got the, the four boys in the same house and yeah. I know all of your brothers and I can, I can kind of imagine how you were the quiet one and reading books. Yeah. And so you're probably, you know, for the most part left alone, from from your parents' point of view, in the sense of like, well, you were the good kid; you weren't getting in trouble, right. or you know, or being loud, right. or whatever. And um, squeaky I guess wheel kind gets of double sword, right? Because because you were being good, you weren't like doing the wrong thing, but you were also, I guess, I don't know if neglect is the right word, but just like you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? right. So if the louder brothers are getting more attention, did that, you know, did that like cause you to to act out in high school at all, or was it just kind of more of the same no so i never was one to act out because again when i was reading books when i was younger i realized that acting out was just a behavioral issue that was somebody seeking attention right um whether it was negative attention it, it's still attention and the body craves it subliminally one way or the other or subconsciously right so um i knew that if I was going to continue to learn and and grow mentally, one of the things I had to immediately hedge out was that. And so I did that from a, from a very early age, but being highly observative, I always observed my brother's behaviors and how much they got in trouble. And it just made me, I learned vicariously. Like I love learning vicariously. If I can learn from somebody else who spent decades or years in suffering because of what they've done, I'm totally going to do it because it's so much more efficient and easier. But um but yeah i don't know um sorry what was the question let's let's get back on Just track like here. was high school any different or was it basically still kind of the same no high school was the same um except that it just presented new problems uh there was always constantly some kind of new issue with the family or with with the brothers drinking drugs from for some of my brother like recreational based drugs mm-hmm. like marijuana stuff like that um yeah, those kind of things spurred up and, you know, me being a problem solver, I always tried to be their psychologist and, you know, help fix them 
but it I'm was I'm sure just, they loved that. Oh God, they hated it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that must have created a little bit of a rift. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really poured myself in, into cars and, right. um, groups like friend group friends, like my car friends and stuff like that, because I just kind of found, found a community in my peers. Right. Yeah. Um, I was very peer oriented in high school. So right. yeah, there were some changes for sure. Yeah. And so I know I don't want to like give away the story, but I know you had a bad accident. Was that in high school or was that post high school? It was, it was, it was, okay. um, so let's talk about that. Cause I know just knowing you, that was a pretty defining moment for you. And it, I guess, can you set the stage a little bit of like, where were you mentally and spiritually prior to that event? Yes. And, and then what were the, 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 so what of after that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, very science oriented. Uh, I was agnostic going into, you know, my, my parents and grandparents went to church, um, on holidays, basically, at least that's what I remember. I'm sure they went more, but I don't know how to say it other than they weren't on fire for the Lord. Like as, as I thought, you know, um, so yeah, so I was agnostic. Uh, I knew that there was a God. I had that foundation there. I believed, like I read the stories and I believed the stories, but it like never really clicked, if that makes sense. So like, you know, I was testing God um, and this is part of my testimony. I guess we can go ahead and just jump into the testimony if that's all right. Um, so I was testing God, being bold, stupid, ignorant, right? Uh, that's what all ignorant non-believers do. And I said, God, Teenager. if you're real, show me, show me. If you're real, show me. And I remember saying that as I was driving by uh, the new church and the church just had a light up ceremony that night and they literally lit it up like as I was driving by and I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, and so I just kept testing him and I don't know, maybe three or four days later, I'm coming uh, down that same road and I had a, just a really eerie gut feeling uh, like something wrong was going to happen. And I preface that to say that you know, I've had a dream that I was going to have a really, really bad accident. And I told my mom years and years in advance that, hey, I'm going to have a really, really bad accident, but it's okay. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I lived through it. So that being said, I'm driving down. I'm getting that eerie feeling. I look over at my buddy, Chris, who's in the passenger seat. And I said, Chris, get your seatbelt on. He said, no, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. I said, you're going to wear your seatbelt or I'm going to pull over. And mind you, this guy's like, he's probably 240, 250, 6'5" big boy, like beat you up. He's the enforcer kind. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. I'm standing up against him because I just know something's going to happen. Right. So he buckles his belt and about five seconds later, we top the hill and I see a drunk driver in my lane heading straight for my vehicle. Uh, adrenaline kicks in. I brace myself on the wheel and my muscles don't give out, but my bones do. So I shatter my right arm from my elbow down in about 300 pieces. And I shattered my left hand because I pushed my steering wheel through my speedometer. And I remember ending up beside him facing the same way because he had flipped us. He hit us so hard. There was ripples down the car and all this stuff. It's, it was wild. Snapped the, the side mirrors completely off the car. And uh, engine was starting to come through the, the, the firewall and everything. It, it was wild. Um, Seatbelt saved Chris's life. I remember looking up at this guy and he's sitting there smiling, laughing. Cause he's so drunk. He doesn't even realize what he's done. He thought it was a fun ride. And, um, I look down and I realize I'm not dying. And then I, as soon as I look up, I look up and it's that cross that's lit up and I just hear wow. God in my head, 
like your conscience would say to you, I could have put you in hell tonight, but I spared you. And man, I was 16. I shouldn't even be here. I should have been dead when I was 16. Straight up. And God spared me. He was merciful and he, he gave me grace that I didn't deserve as usual. And I said, okay, I hear you loud and clear. So I get out of the hospital and uh, I said, one of the things I prayed was, please just, just help me get to that church. That was my prayer at that time. And so I, I get healed and I, I get, um, get home and I'm recovering. And my brothers come home and they bring two girls to the front door of my parents' house. It was uh, Jennifer and Summer. And I'll never forget it. Uh, that voice popped up in my head again and said, you're going to marry one of those girls. And I looked over at my mom and I said, Mom, I'm telling you, this is wild. I don't, I don't know why this is happening, but I feel like God's telling me I'm going to marry one of these girls. And I just want you to know that ahead of time. She laughed. And she They're just like, oh, being yeah, silly. Sure. They're just pretty you're girls. You're still on your pain meds or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Just brushing it off. And um, so, I, you know, Summer introduces herself to me and immediately we click. I know it's her. I know it's her. And um, we, we, she introduced herself. She says, I know this is super strange, but God's putting it on my heart to ask you to come to church with me. Buddy, ain't nothing else in this world going to convince me that God's not real after that. Yeah. I mean, at that point, it was like, okay, 100% loud and clear. I read you. And so I said, yes, yes. And um, turns out to be the exact church. She had gone wow. to that church her whole life. She had been going to Harrisburg Baptist Church her whole life. And uh, so I remember praying a little bit more. I started praying after that because I wasn't stupid. And um, I just felt like I, I was, my prayer was, God, I need you to reveal yourself to me and and teach me what I need to do, right? I need to move forward with you because um, I don't want this to stay stagnant, right? That was kind of my thought process. And yeah. So I go to church with Summer, and um, Brother David is preaching that weekend. He's the associate pastor, and it just so happens he's pe preaching, and Brother Forrest is probably preaching 95% of the time. So I landed him my first my first time to church. So I'm listening to what he's saying, and it, and I'm telling you, man, it's like God was speaking directly through that man to me. Like he was just using him as a microphone. I, I, I can literally see God just laughing. Like, I got him. Right? Told you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> And so he's speaking so much to me that I'm just weeping in the middle of a sermon. Just a normal sermon. Everybody, and everybody else is like, what is going on with that kid, right? And I'm just weeping to the point where I just I get up and I'm starting to walk out of the, the main hall. And... um some men come out there and, you know, they, they counsel me and I tell them what's going on in the whole situation and um, prayed the sinner's prayer and started, uh, man, I just remember being on fire that week. Like my whole world was just completely different. Uh, super excited, super happy, joy, not happiness, joy. Um, Cause there's a very big distinction between the two. And can, why don't, Sorry to interrupt you, but sure. let's define in Brandon's words, what's the difference between happiness and joy? Happiness is something we seek and joy is something we receive. And the only way we can receive true joy is through Jesus. And he is the only source of joy. And I call it, uh, well, C.S. Lewis calls it the God-shaped hole in our heart, right? Mm -hmm. So God makes us to have a void that only he can fill. Yep. And that's so that we have the free will and hopefully with that void, we choose to love him and pursue him. And so that's joy. 
Um, and I just remember having this exuberant amount of overflowing joy. Like you could knock me in my face and I would still be smiling, like just for weeks and weeks. And uh, so I, I really worked on maturity and all that stuff. And what's so funny is Brother David is the one who baptized me and married me and all that stuff. So he had a, a huge part in my um, in my upcoming, so in my Christian maturity. But um, but yeah, and he ended up being my Sunday school teacher for a couple of years. So yeah, but that's so that's my testimony, man. It's 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 a wild thing, but it was it's an incredible thing. I, I I'm very blessed. Like I said, I shouldn't even be here, and yet I'm sitting here enjoying blessings because of him. Yeah, so let me go back to one thing too. Um, sure. You said you had this dream that you were going to be in a bad accident at some point. How old were you when that happened? Roughly ten, maybe ten or eleven. So this is years in advance of it happening, and like. Can you just describe that dream a little bit? Like, so it's not like a deja vu or like a normal dream. It was just different. It was, it was more vivid. And the only way I can express it is like the difference between looking at through a VR goggle and actually looking at real life. Does that make sense? Like, there's you can tell there's a difference, right? No matter yeah. how good the VR is, you're wearing something, right? There's a difference. So. And there was another, but it was like, like it was vivid enough though, that like it, it wasn't, I'm just trying to unpack it, right? It's such an abstract thing to try and put into words yeah, virtually so, or just listening to, but. So my whole life I've had dreams like that. And I know okay. when they're those dreams because I've had so many of them. And so like one of the things that I knew was that my wife would have a birthmark on her left inner calf. I just knew that. And, um, sure enough, when I was, I had just happened chance in college i was talking about it was summer and she's like no way and so she showed me the birthmark on her calf and i'm like you know and then there was another time where she was coming out of um the student union at old miss coming down the stairs and i i didn't know if it was her or not but i knew that my wife was coming down the stairs and when it actually happened i realized it was her and i knew i was going to marry her at that point so started ring shopping and all that stuff. So yeah, I've I've had dreams like that, um, and I don't know why. I just just do, and I just I believe God gives me some insight before it happens so that I can be prepared. I mean, that's the best way I can put that. So, what's the last premonition that you've had, Brandon? Um, Christ returning. Um, I saw, and this is kind of crazy. I know this is going to like go loony town for most people, but like I literally saw mayhem. I was standing outside of like a major supermarket and there was just absolute mayhem in the parking lot. And then I saw a bright light through the clouds and I saw Jesus coming through him. And I just remember falling on my knees and waking up. And that's the last one I had, but whether that one comes true or not, we don't know. No man knows the hour of the day. Right. So, right. So a Black hey, Friday it. sale may trigger the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. You had a dream about Black Friday. Hey, look, uh, but look, I, I would love to go up like Eli did. That's all I can say about that. Yeah, so. yeah. Yep. But. Um, okay, so you had this, you know, t for lack of a better term, defining moment, uh, this, this pivotal moment physically, mentally, spiritually from yeah. this car accident and then you know, feeling like God tugging on, on your heart and saying, look, I, I could have, you're, you're lucky to be here right now, you know. Like, so how then was your life different? Oh, man. In two ways. I want to ask this in two ways. One, in the way that you approached development as a man, 
and then development of your soul. Because I think they're very, two very different things, right? Yeah. Like, and, and especially being so introverted and kind of being like the one who kind of just read books and learned on his own and solved mm-hmm. his own problems. Did any of that change after this event? Moving forward into like graduating high school, going to college, you know, how is Brandon different? Yeah, so um, obviously sanctification played a huge role in that. Um, like if I was looking back five years, 10 years, 15 years, I can see points where like I quit drinking, I quit cussing, uh, I quit being around and socially smoking with people like cigarettes and stuff and doing stupid stuff like um, game addiction. Like I, I cut back on that and like I had a, a lot of smaller things. I did like I never did hard drugs. I, I never did stupid things like just go out and randomly do stupid stuff. Right. I, like I wasn't one of those people like so there wasn't a lot really to fix there. But there was spiritually, there was a lot spiritually to fix. And so, um, in fact, I was trying to mature on my own and I struggled for probably five years. And I, and then I eventually, because of the people I hung out with, uh, previous friendships and people around me, um, I actually kind of backslid and stagnated for a couple of years. And eventually some hardships hit me and it drew me closer to God again, suffering, Again, suffering is one of the most necessary things that's ever happened in my life. Like, good. I'm glad I'm suffering. I'd hate it at the time, but all discipline at at, at the time seems terrible, right? Right. But like, every time I'm suffering, it's it's a beautiful negative to me because I'm growing in some way. I am becoming stronger in some way. Can you talk about that stagnation some more and like where... Yeah. Actually, let's go back a little bit further before you do that. Talk sure. about, okay, so you met Summer in high school. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that relationship grew through college. And then did yeah. the stagnation come before you were married or is that after you'd been married? Um, before. And the stagnation okay. and and the troubles that Summer and I actually had were in college time. Just because, again, I isolated. Um, okay. And during my stagnation period, I was heavily addicted to... Um, gaming like 12 13 hours a day like bad right um failed out of college at one semester wow. so that was kind of the the epical event that told me hey buddy you can't sleep through these classes like you did in high school and make straight a's you have to actually try here and um so yeah that was a it's a definite period of growth for me and suffering but Summer and I actually took a break because I didn't know what I wanted. Like I was, that was the point in time where I realized that I was kind of having an existential crisis, right? Like I was starting to actually get into the depth of things I never dug into, like my traumas and, you know, my things that I was struggling with. And I started reading things like Nietzsche and Carl Jung and uh, Maps of Meaning by Dr. Jordan Peterson. Like I was a Peterson fan well before he got famous. Like I, I, I literally followed the man's work. 10, 15 years before he ever got famous. But like I started reading his stuff and the introspective thinking just went in overdrive, you know, C.S. Lewis, um, those kind of things. And so I didn't know what I wanted and I never asked myself what I wanted. That was the biggest issue. I always was a people pleaser and I was always stuck in a performance trap. Even spiritually, I was in a performance trap. 
So my idea back then as an immature Christian of what a good Christian is, is somebody who follows all the commandments and does what he's supposed to do as a good boy. And that's going to get me into heaven. And I didn't have the mature understanding that, yes, repentance is required and necessary. But no amount of work I do is going to make my vile, wretched heart worthy of Christ or God. And so uh, there was a lot of comeuppance in that that time because I, I had to realize there were things in me that I had to root out that were going to be painful. And I didn't want people around to suffer with me because I, I would I kind of externalize it. Right. I project it. And so especially with my attachment type. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I had to work through a lot of things in college and um, I learned how to learn. So a lot of things were just really easy all the way up into that point. And then this was the first time I actually had challenges where I had to like actually learn, like learn, learn. And it was super frustrating because everything else was just so easy. Right. Like it was like somebody handed me the knowledge on a silver platter. And I was like, no, you got to work for this. Like you get into economics and microeconomics and macro and all these other crazy X bars and all that. I was just, man, this is nightmare stuff for me, man. And so, I, you know, I had to actually study. And so I think the biggest thing was I had to learn to create discipline for myself in my own life. And I had to take a step back and figure out what I needed and prioritize myself even just a little bit. You know, I, I was still a people pleaser to a vast extent, but I at least brought myself back a little bit. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's I would say college was a huge, huge time for me. And then. After you graduate, how long until you got married? Uh, so we were going to get engaged while we were in college. But one of the things I did was I always seeked counsel from my papa, my grandfather. Okay. And he's kind of the guy like if, if he told you it was going to rain, you, you brought an umbrella. Um, his words and his thoughts always matched his actions. And so he was the one that I, even though I didn't get to see him a lot either, he was the one that when I did get to speak with him, there was deep conversation, right? And so when he said, now, son, listen, like I was all ears, right? I was just, I was just begging for the, the attention and the, the, the knowledge from him because he had the experience-based knowledge, right? And he, he's just very savvy, charismatic guy with an infectious laugh. And so my grandfather taught me a lot. And one of the things he taught me that actually saved my relationship with Summer was, you never let a good thing go, but you never, ever let a great thing go. And when me and Summer were on a break, I just kept remembering that. And that made me realize what I had. And um, and then I asked him, I said, Papa, I want to marry this this woman. What do you expect? What do you suggest I do? He says, wait till you're out of college. Because if you do it now and you have kids while you're in college, you're going to struggle. He said, wait till you get out of college, get financially stable and create a foundation for both your relationship and for your kid's future financially. And after thinking about it, it made perfect sense. And so we got engaged my senior year of college with like maybe a couple months left. And so we got um, married that next summer when we were both graduated. What what year were you in when you had this conversation with your grandpa or your papa? 2008, 2009. So you were like a junior or what? Yeah, it was a junior year. And did you like state your intentions or your desire to summer at that point and say, Hey, look, I, 
I don't want to be separated anymore. I don't want to be on a break anymore, but I think we need to wait till this point. Or was it like, like how, how did that all unfold? Talk us through that. Yeah. Um, I knew I was going to marry her. Um, okay. yeah, but did she know that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I told her I was going to marry her. Even when we were a teenage kids, you know, um, we knew we were going to get married. We made a promise to each other and we loved each other. And so we knew that we were, we were going to marry eventually. And yeah, so. Good to have a plan. I like it. So while you were on a break, did you date any other girls? Did you have any other girlfriends while you were, uh, before you got married? So I went on two different dates with two different girls, actually. Yeah. Two, two different dates. Yeah. Two different girls, but like, man, they just made me want summer more. (laughs) Like when I started seeing what other girls were like, I just, it it left a, a sour taste in my mouth. Right. Like just emotionally, they weren't present like she was. They weren't as mature as she was. They weren't nurturing. Like, man, I just, I knew like after a couple of dates, it was like, man, I struck it rich with Summer because like, good example. First girl that I took a date, took a date with, I actually made her dinner and I made her like a fresh Grecian salad, all these good things like from scratch, right? She didn't even care. Didn't say thank you. Didn't do it. I said, nope. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different factors there, but yeah, like I just knew the more I dated somebody, like I couldn't even kiss the other girls. I didn't want to, I, I just kept thinking about summer. And so that, that was the key, um, factor there that told me yeah. that summer was it for sure. Yeah. You weren't emotionally available. I have a feeling mm-hmm. even if they were the most wonderful women on the planet, you oh, yeah. cared. you, you know, yeah. your, your heart wasn't there. So yeah. And that's, yeah, that's like great. there was a couple that were great, great women, but mm-mm. Just couldn't do it. I'm a one one girl guy. So, so you yeah. never had a serious relationship with anyone but Summer. That's actually correct. Yep. Yeah. And, and we do were, you think? Go I ahead. Was a, sorry. I was gonna say I was a virgin, and, and until Summer and I got married, and and yeah, and I was totally okay with that. You know, I was a Tim Tebow. <laughs> yeah. So well, I so we're gonna get to that later because I just want to kind of like foreshadow for those listening. You know, I think I'll, I'll speak for myself. I mean, I I look or I used to look at the marriage that you have with summer and be jealous, right? Mm. Because you would describe the way that your marriage was and, and the, just the depth of everything that you experienced with her, you know, in, in confidence and in, in our very tight knit group here and be like, man, well, why isn't my marriage like that? You know, mm. not, and then I'm not just talking physically, I'm talking every, every aspect of marriage, but, um, I, that's gotta be a humongous factor. Why? Right. And that's very unpopular in the age we live in. Right. Yeah. It's very, counterculture but having kind of lived in both world living the opposite of what you've just described and but seeing what you've had um yeah i think you probably had it right you know and uh so i want to unpack that with you but so let's dustin i just want to pause in case you had any follow-ups to kind of the relationship stuff yeah, it's kind of like marry early and marry well, right? Is the uh, I think what you did, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. which is, I mean, congrats, congratulations yeah. to you. There's not a lot of men that can say that they they did what you did. Um, how would you push back against our popular culture that would say that you missed out, that you didn't right. uh, play the field enough to really meet the right person, that yeah. um, you know your uh, you didn't date enough women to kind of sow your oats and experience the world? How would you respond to that, man? Hmm. 
there's not a bigger blessing in the world than a, a woman that's worth a lifetime. And when you're on your deathbed, which I've thought I've been on a couple of times, and the only thing that you want when you're dying is her, one night stands and five minutes with somebody else doesn't mean Jack deadly in this world. It's just like any, at that point, you're treating a woman as a materialistic object. It's just like driving a fast car. It's, there's no substance there. Like I knew from the minute I was a kid that I was looking for the one. I wasn't looking for a cheap date or a fun time ever. Like it was never that for me. It was always wanting the forever girl. And like I got rejected a lot growing up and I would, people saw me as clean, but I just was serious. Like I just knew what I wanted. And so when I found Summer, it was like, wow, this is, this was it, right? That's beautiful. I, I love to hear that. So what advice would you give to young men who are on Tinder, who are swiping left and right? Um, what, what does that do to their brain? And what, what is the solution to a world where you have a thousand beautiful options and it's yeah. hard to choose the right one? Hmm. I would say that it's really easy to find a pretty girl on the outside, but it's really tough to find one that's beautiful on the inside, especially now uh, with the generations that, that have come up, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of women live in a fairy tale, unrealistic reality. They think that Prince Charming is X, this, 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 and this, and they have these high standards and double standards. And, um, my best advice for you is to find a woman who seeks the Lord, because if she's really turning to the word, she's going to be natural. And I'm not talking about feminist movement, feminine. I'm talking about truly feminine, like a beautiful, nurturing, loving woman who will be loyal to the day she dies. That's the kind of love you need to be looking for. And there's a lot of qualities for that. But the most important thing as a man that he should be worrying about if he's a young man is being worthy of that love, because even if he finds it, if he's not worthy of it, he'll never get it. Yeah, she'll pass him over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with that, let's let's fast forward then. So sure. graduate college, you, you're engaged, you get married. You know, when did you get married? And then talk, talk about kind of like starting out together as a married couple. And, sure. Um, you, you are the only serious relationship that either one of you has had. You know, so talk, talk through what it was like. It was bliss. Life together. Without kids, the first five years. So I was a big Dave Ramsey guy in college. Yeah. Um, when I drove from my job, I had a, a full-time job on top of school to support myself. And um, I would always just listen to Dave Ramsey religiously. And um, one of the things Dave always said was have a plan and, and implement it as soon as possible. And he had the baby steps program, right? So I did the total money makeover. And when Summer and I got married, the first conversation we had was what's mine is yours. Yours is mine. We are one flesh. We are a team. It's us against the world, not uh, me versus you or me versus the world and you. It's we're a team. We're doing this together. All finances are together. There's no hidden accounts. There's no free accounts to do whatever we want with. It's everything is in one place. And we, we figure out foundationally what we want, what we want to spend, how we want to spend it. And then we stick to that. And, we both had college debt. And so our game plan was five years to get debt free, to travel and have fun with each other. 
And man, we had a blast. We would stay up late every night watching Friends and Golden Girls and I Love Lucy and Andy Griffith and, you know, whatever she wanted to watch or whatever I wanted to watch. And we'd go through these movies and these shows. I'm kind of a big movie buff. And so we would go through them and some nights we just read next to each other, but we were just, we didn't need to be, that's the thing. Like our relationship has balance. And that's one of the main things I write about in my book is that our relationship has a healthy balance. We're not codependent. We don't have to be attached to the heart hip. We're attached at the heart, which means, and that's my phrase that I put in the book is that we are attached at the heart, not at the hip. And it's because we can be around each other doing our own hobbies and, and just being, we know that we love each other. We, we are comfortable in our own skin around each other. Right. And we're comfortable that our relationship's not going anywhere. And I'm not saying to neglect the time that you have together. I'm just saying, don't be a level, level five clinger, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the best way to put it, right? Like <laughs> you can't be so codependent. Don't be dependent on your spouse for your happiness. Yeah. Be able to have happiness by yourself and with your wife and have a balance between the two. So quick question, Brandon, who's your favorite golden girl? <laughs> uh the granny. What's the granny's name? I'm drawing a blank now. Oh, no. Madge or I forget. I know you're talking about the. She's so cranky. She's the best. But she's the wittiest one out of all of them. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, her daughter always gives her grief and she gives it right back to her. And she's so funny and she, she makes fun of the other ones. So, yeah, yeah. I would say her. Yeah. I'm a Betty White guy. Bless her heart. Oh, Betty White was amazing. <laughs> Rest in peace. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But no, no. Um, what were we talking about? I'm sorry, I got sidetracked there with the Betty White stuff. Yeah, well, I'll I'll ask a question. And so sure, you're, sure. you're saying, you know, be attached at the heart, not at the hip. Yes. Can you highlight a little bit what that looks like? Yes, yes. So we were talking about our first five years, right? So we did a lot of spontaneous things too. Can I just mention that real quick? Because like I bought a convertible right out of college. We went, we got debt free. We paid off all of our cars. Uh, we paid off all of our college debts within two years. We did it three wow. years ahead of time. And then we went and bought a house and tried to put as much as we could towards it. We were literally debt-free minus our house. So when we decided to have kids, we had no financial strain whatsoever. And we haven't ever since. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a very important factor because Dave always talked about financial um, stress putting huge pressure on, on marriages. Yeah. So it was really important for us to go into our marriage and keep our marriage healthy um, financially. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I want to back up a little bit too, and talk about a little bit like headship and stuff. So were you, sure. you know, were you at a point where you felt that you were leading your, it was just the two of you for the time being, but were you, especially when you talk about like not being codependent things like that. So you, you had a plan, you were casting vision. Mm -hmm. Yes. No. Or, or was that still an area that like you needed to grow? So I've always had a five year and a 10 year plan for everything in my life. Okay. And when so you I were came, leading, early, you were leading well as her husband very early, but it was kind of a, that responsibility. Right. But it, it wasn't an, like a active conscious thing for me. It was just more of a, I'm a very planned out person. She is too. And, um, we wanted to plan together. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think it was a little bit of biblical wisdom mixed with just my own type A personality. Right. And so, I wanted a long-term and a short-term and a medium-term goal. And that was both in career, uh, in my sex life, in my marriage, uh, kids, personal growth. There was a lot of things, right? And so 
obviously the first five years, we just want to enjoy us and sex life. Right. I mean, that's kids red light, green light it all the time, man. That's a tough thing, you know? And so we, we knew we <laughs> wanted to enjoy it. Right. And so yep. being a perfectly natural thing, we just, man, I, I'll never forget it. Bought the convertible, called summer up on the way home from a rough day at work on a Friday and said, pack your bag. I'm not telling you where we're going, but we're going somewhere. And we went to the beach for like three or four days and had an amazing time. Like it was like the honeymoons after the honeymoon. Yeah. Like we tried to take as many trips, even if they were just small and it didn't matter how far we drove, but we had a blast and we spent time together and we cultivated a relationship that we knew would be worthy of being seen by our kids. Mm -hmm. And so three or four years in, we started praying about kids and we both just knew it was going to be two kids, boy and a girl. And that's exactly what we got. And so after that, we were like, okay, we're done. And, uh, you know, I went and got the snip, you know, wore the cone of shame for three days kind of deal, you know, and, but, you know, I mean, that's all she wrote for that. I mean, it was, it, we, yeah. we had a plan, we implemented it and it was, it made things so much easier. What do you think you did differently that so many men seem to get wrong? And like, I mean, we just did my story recently, right? So like, you know, you can compare and contrast off <laughs> me if you want, but yeah, you know, wh why why were the two of you able to basically hit the ground running in a way that so many seem to struggle with? Um, you know, you didn't have this period. Like, I mean, let's go back to what Dr. Willard Harley said, right? Year two is usually the hardest year for most marriages. Mm. The honeymoon was... phase wears off. You, all the reality sets in. You guys didn't really seem to have that, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what were kind of let's start with some tactical things mm -hmm. and then maybe some more higher level things like spirituality and things like that. Um, I'm not, because even... your, your story is not normal, right? No, I think, definitely you're not. Go, wow, that's crazy. And so what can people learn from, from what you did? Yeah. Um, our relationship was just so naturally harmonious because the temptation to be selfish was always squashed. Like I wanted to go do something, but it's like, is that best for me and summer? No, then I need to put that behind me for a little while and find a better time to do it. And I think a lot of the things that people struggle with in relationships is selfishness. Cause think about it when you argue and you fight and you call your wife a bad name and you dig at her, why are you doing it? Selfish. You're hurt, so you want somebody else to hurt, right? Selfishness. Or, hey, I want to go do this, and I don't care what you do. That's selfish. Buddy, if I'm going to the refrigerator to get a glass of water, guess what I do? Grab my wife a glass of water and bring it back to her. Again, one flesh. We have to both be equal, and we have to take care of each other. And so... It's just little things every day that build up. So I would say the first thing to do is start with small victories. Make your wife a cup of coffee every morning. Cook her breakfast every morning. Don't ever miss it. Or pray for her every day. Let her see it. Pray with her. Do Bible studies together. Hell, you want to have some fun? Do Bible studies naked. <laughs> Argue naked. Don't ever go to sleep pissed I, off. I don't think the argument lasts very long at that point. No, right? Right. <laughs> so like, 
yeah. little things just just have little victories and then when the guard's down and you guys learn to love and to talk to each other with emotional regulation and emotional intelligence and stop letting your pride and your, your defense mechanisms go up and you be vulnerable to each other like you were when you first started dating because you wanted them then you can start working things out right yeah so um, keep the pursuit going yeah right like I, but i think that's so it's all too common like to get married and think oh well we're married now like i don't have to try anymore it's like yeah no, you should try twice as hard yep and here's you should be twice as intentional about everything you do it seems like both of you were fully invested and in not just oh we're married now and life is normal but you you put you kept pouring into the relationship um which I think a lot of people are still relatively successful at doing prior to kids. Mm -hmm. so let's talk about, okay, so you became a father and she became a mother. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like the first time you became a dad and then any impacts that had on your relationship and how you um, continue to keep kind of building momentum as opposed to letting it set you back. Yeah, so... Our marriage never struggled until we actually had kids. And I think one of the root causes of that was because, again, selfishness came up. And the selfishness was this time that I don't get the time that I had devoted to my wife all the time. I didn't get to prioritize her as much as I wanted to anymore. And I also had to die to a lot of other personal self-hobbies and different things that I enjoyed, right? So... There was a lot of um, things that had to be rooted out that that sucked. <laughs> Put it lightly, but um, like what? If you're willing to share, sure. Like gaming. Like I was a huge okay. avid gamer, and I loved gaming. I was streaming. I was doing a lot of stuff online. Had a big community built up and a bunch of subscribers and different things. And I was editing 40 hours a week because um, it was my passion, right? And cars. I love modifying cars and building cars and I was building my Z up and I like every month I was buying specific parts and, and really work, I was earning extra to, to put, to put those parts. But after a kid, I can't do that. Like I had to put a lot of that stuff away and that to go from having this super comfortable life, whatever I want, whenever I want it to, I've got some priorities that I have to put ahead of those things now was tough. And that was also the time that I had a job that it wasn't hell, but it had a great view of it. So for me, it was just like, I had a really terrible boss that just externalized a lot of his own personal issues and like took it out on a lot of people. And I was one of the punching bags, unfortunately. So just a really, really bad soul sucking job. And it wasn't what I expected because I think I was at the point in my life where I realized I was at the point of no return with doing the grandiose dreams that I had in my mind. Some of my dreams were dying. And that was a real struggle for me. So I faced a lot of heavy depression and anxiety because I was just going to be doing, I felt like I was going to be stuck in the nine to five cube farm for the rest of my life. And gotcha. that, that was spooky for me, but I knew I had to provide for my kids at any cost and provide stability. And I wanted to maintain the stability that we built years before them. And so I just bit my lip and bared it, right? I just kept doing it, but I prayed to God, prepare me for whatever's in my future. And boy, did he. So did any of your, I don't know if trauma is the right word, but just 
in the way that you were raised, did any of those challenges present themselves in this moment where you're a dad now and the temptation to be selfish, which I, I gotta believe every dad listening to this can relate to that, that feeling of, Oh, I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but how, how exactly did, did your past play, uh, play a role in your present at the time as a, as a new dad and husband? Yeah. And, and, um, and I guess kind of what are the takeaways from that words of caution and that kind of thing? Yeah. My, again, it was isolation. Um, kids crying at 3am from colic. We probably averaged three hours of sleep a night for six months because of his colic. And um, those were broken up hours. So it was one hour here, one hour there, one hour there, and then I'd go to work. And um, escapism was like my biggest thing. That was my main priority for the first year, just survival mode and escapism, like escaping from him, escaping from my wife. And it was, it was the worst thing I could have possibly done, but didn't have a choice. I was in survival mode and I had to provide, right? I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And then I realized what I was doing and I knew I had to change that. That was my epical moment for myself as a, a man. And as a leader in my house, like that was the turning point for me where I realized, like, I'll tell you an example. It's 3 a.m. He's scream crying in my ear and I'm crying as well because I'm just emotional and I'm tired and I'm, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. And I told Summer, I need you to go get him because I just left him in his crib. I couldn't. I couldn't be around him. And I literally at 2 a.m. in the morning walked out my front door and I walked for about two and a half miles before I came back home. And I just, I was at my wits end and, um, went to the doctor, tried to get on some medicine for it. Didn't, it made it way worse, way worse. And I'll never forget it. Dr. Jones said, Brandon, you just need to go to the gym every day, no matter what you're doing and you need to eat healthier. And, I, and he said, you do that for three weeks and it'll help. And I'll never forget it. 20 day, 20 day, 21 clouds started parting finally. And I started diving back into the word. And uh, I seeked counsel from my, my pastor because I didn't have a support. I didn't have any support. Nobody came and helped us with this baby except for a couple of summer's friends. And so, and, and what, if I'm being 100% transparent, honest, because my mom's back, she couldn't come. And so like my dad being gone all the time, my own parents weren't here to help us with our kid. My grandparents live here. They didn't help. They couldn't. They had their own did, lives, right? And did you ask? There were a couple of times we did, but after a while, okay. you feel like it's excuses and you give up. Okay. And you just realize you got to tough it out on your own. So I went to the pastor um, just in a really bad spot, and I'll never forget it. He read me Matthew talking about the birds of the air and uh, the flowers of the field and how they don't right. reap or sow, and yet God takes care of them. Surely he would take care of somebody he loves so much more, right? And I just remember this overwhelming sense of relief washing over me like, Brandon, you stupid idiot. You just, you lost sight, man. You lost sight because of the hardship. And yeah. So, you know, earlier in this exact same episode, you talked about how when you were younger, you had to retreat to solitude and solve your own problems. And so do you think you were just reverting to kind of like your mm -hmm. own conditioning in that moment? And, it, and, and this, having that conversation with your pastor was kind of like, the renewing of your mind in a sense to be like, yes. okay, it worked when I was a kid. This isn't the time for that anymore. I was a hundred percent double-minded. 
Okay. Um, double-minded because I was viewing things in a worldly view instead of a Christian view. And I was also just physically and mentally and emotionally just not placing myself with the right priorities, not placing myself with self-care or anything. I wasn't doing anything that I should have been doing that I always had been doing. And, mm. and then on top of that, I was isolating because that's my natural defensive response. And so it's like, it just, it just compounded. Right. And so reaching out to my pastor was kind of my courageous act of I've hit rock bottom. I have nowhere right. else to go. I have to get out of this or it, I'm just not going to survive. Right. And so yeah. this was my last ditch effort. And it was right. one of the best things I ever did. Again, brother David saving yeah. my life, man. That's amazing. And you also, I mean, to all the dads out there, we, we all have that moment. I know I have, you did the right thing walking away, Brandon, because in that moment you might do something you regret to your child, you know? Yeah. So when you know you're in that place, you have to walk away and yeah. leave your kid in the crib and let him cry. You got it. You know, we, we are all men. We're flawed. And yeah. when you know that you are at your breaking point, you have to, you have to, you know, ask for help and, um, yeah and make sure that you don't do anything you regret. So you, you did the right thing there. That was not, yeah, that I was mean, not a weakness at all. My escapism was so great at that time that I literally almost bought a ticket to Japan and just got on the plane and never came back. I literally almost got on a plane and went to another country. I have no idea how to speak their language and just would have left. Like I was at that point. That's how low I was. I remember that vivid thought process and thinking, wow. That is the crappiest thing. I will, I will never do it. But it was still a thought in my head. It was ideation, right? And that mm -hmm. was part of the depression and the other stuff. And I clearly knew that. But like, there was a lot of shame and guilt behind that feeling sure. and that thought process. And so I had to learn to give myself some grace that, hey, look, you're just under a lot of pressure. And you got to start checking the right boxes and stop checking these wrong ones, right? And so that yeah. was where the, the real transformational journey began for me as a man. So again, I started diving into Jordan Peterson's stuff and just really, really working on myself. I started hitting the gym and eating healthy and, you know, having, um, foundational conversations with my wife. And that's one of the two things I meant to say, um, rolling back now that I've thought about it was you have to set a foundation with your wife on what you're going to do day to day, because if there's something that you don't like to do that she doesn't mind doing, and you're doing it anyways, you're building up bitterness against your partner. Yeah. Yep. And so when we first got married, we had to set up those foundational things. Like, I don't mind taking out the trash, do some curls while you're doing it. You know, yeah, that's cool. Hate laundry. Hate it. She doesn't mind it. So she does the laundry. I do the, the, the trash and the recycling and all that stuff. And I do the finances and, you know, we found out what works for what, and we negotiated and we set a foundation. And then the second thing is, is we had to, and especially during this turmoil time, so we had to set aside, I don't know, at least a solid five to six hours a week where we talked and we kept up to speed with each other. How are you doing? Do you want me to listen or do you want me to help you solve it? What can we do to attack this? What can we do to fix this? Like we had to have meetings, family meetings together, and we had to create time to keep maintenance for our marriage yeah. because in survival mode, it's so easy to drop back to solo yep. mode. You know, you're just a robot doing the thing every day. 
I'm just going to fix things like because you get bad enough and that hierarchy of needs, you're just going to try to fix things for yourself. And excuse my French, but to hell with everybody else. Right. And so you have to stuff that by fixing things with your wife, not away from her. Have her help. So she sees where you're at. She knows what you're feeling and then she can, you know, support you. And if she's not supporting you, man, she's got a lot of things to work for, uh, for herself as well with the Lord. Cause man. Well, it's also like, it's so tempting, like, especially when you're tired and fatigued, right? Yeah. It's so tempting to think about your own needs only. And your wife is just as tired and just as worn out when you're raising yeah. a brand new baby, right? Like you're both in that state. And so to just, to kind of gut punch yourself and force yourself to, to think outside of yourself and like, oh, you know, she's worn out too. Like we're both not at 100% here. Also helps just pump the brakes on that yeah. self-serving kind of spiral that we can get down. Right. And, and I, I say this as a guy who failed that this miserably when <laughs> I had a newborn. So uh, not from an air of superiority, but um, just driving that point home, it's... And I think this is where isolation was your was your risk too, right? Because you mm -hmm. didn't have other men in your life be like, hey, dude, look, I, I know you're in the thick of it, but this is what's going on. Dump to me and then go show up for your wife. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I didn't have that either. Yeah, and so I, then I never the, had the that. The temptation to butt heads is significantly higher, right? So I'll let you respond to that, but I do want to yeah. get going forward in the next couple of minutes sure. to the so, birth of your daughter. Growing up my whole life, I never had, hey, you, you should do this. This will help you with this. Or here's your mm -hmm. game plan of attack for this. So I had to figure it all out vicariously or by myself. And so again, I was reverting, but, and I don't say if your wife doesn't support you, then she's got a lot of work to do herself without saying that you've got to do it yourself too. Like it's both sides. It's not just her. And so like, that's why I encourage people to do it together because you've got to work on you and she's got to work on her and you've got to do it together because if you don't, then you're just surviving without each other and your roommates. Right. And yeah. that's not a marriage. That's a, a financial agreement with a baby and a whole lot of complications. You got to love one another and support and you each both other. start to feel loneliness really quick. And that, that selflessness has to be there. Even if you feel like I'll never forget it. He threw up on my shoulder. I probably had about two hours of sleep and I had pulled about a 14 hour work day. And he was running a fever. He was super sick. And Summer said, I need a bath. Cause I just, I feel disgusting. And like my initial instinct was like, I need him off me with this throw up, right? But I was like, honey, go take your bath. I'll take care of this. So I shul literally shouldered the vomit and the whole thing with Ben because I knew she needed a minute too. And so again, yeah, you're 100% right on that. You have to think selflessly and not selfishly. Again, selfishness is the root of most issues in a marriage. So if you're seeing issues in your marriage, start with yourself. I know that's a tough pill to swallow, and I'm sorry that may be blunt, but start with the things that you can fix. You, you can fix you. You can't fix somebody else. They have to fix themselves. You can encourage them. You can help walk them through it, but you have to fix you, and they have to fix them. 
And yep. the more you fix yourself, the more they're going to see it modeled and the more they're going to want to right. do it. Yep. So. Especially as the husband, right? You, you can kind of lead in this manner, like, and, and, and not from a, you know, talking down way, but yeah. just because you know, it's the best thing to do and naturally people will follow. So yeah. let, let's fast forward, Brandon. I want to, just before we take a break, I want to sure. get through. So obviously adapting to life as new parents is difficult for everyone. Fast forward a little bit, how your marriage continued forward, and then and you guys decided to have your second child. And let's mm-hmm. let's let's get through hmm. birth of your daughter and kind of how maybe things were different, what you learned. And then we'll take yeah. a break. Man, uh, so once Ben was a little bit older, things smoothed out. Um, I learned to properly address, and I built coping mechanisms and all the different things to better address my situation. Um, but I, the more I grew, just 1% a day, the easier it got until eventually it was just to the point where it's like it wasn't a burden anymore. It was a blessing. And I think looking back, the only regret I have was how much time and presence I missed being in survival mode with him. So a great example, I was taking pictures of some animals in uh, a park that we had visited that was gorgeous. And I just wanted to relish in the moment. I didn't even take the pictures with the camera. I was like, you know, I was just looking at them and Ben asked me, why daddy, why aren't you taking pictures of it? It's right there. And I said, because some things are worth just enjoying in the moment. Right. And at that same moment, it's like, I had this realization that I didn't do that for a lot of his childhood because I was in survival mode and I'm not going to do that for my daughter that's one of the things I did learn through him. And, um, so I grew a lot and I fixed a lot and it was very painful and I did it by myself, but I'm okay with that. And, and I fought tooth and nail and then I was praying to God about it. And I just knew it was time for us to have a second kid. And, um, I wanted that girl. I wanted the other one, right. You know, I wanted to see what the variances are and the differences are. And so I was excited. God put it, put excitement in my heart because after Ben, I was like, Ooh, as rough as those first few years where I didn't know if we could have a second kid, but man, sure enough, God put it on my heart to have a second kid. And so I discussed it with Summer. She was all on board for it. She wanted she baby fever and you know, all that stuff. And so we have Bela, um, other than her almost going into cardiac arrest while having our baby, um, everything went great. And she came home, she slept through the night. Oh my gosh, that was just so foreign. We thought she was dead, man. Like I was so scared. I ran to her bed and she's just sitting there breathing like a little angel. And it was like, wow, okay, we're okay. We're going to get through this, right? You know, we've been through it before. We got a little experience, you know? And so um, at that point it was like, okay, I've, I've stepped up. I know what my weaknesses are, but I've got to step up even more. So now it's time to be the leader. Now it's time to really start fixing everything that was generational so that my children don't have to fight those battles because the ones I refuse to fight, they end up fighting and I'm not going to have that. And so we have family meetings. We have a family motto. We keep it fun, um, but we, we, we take care of business and um, we address things as we need to. And yeah, man, we grow, I mean, through our mistakes, right. And we grow together again. Summer and I grow together. I mean, there's times where 
Like, I'm like, honey, take a breath. Go, go, go take a walk for a second. You're a little heated. And she'll say sorry and she'll take a walk. And I'll, hey, you kind of frustrated mom right there. And here's why. And, you know, I go through it and I said, should we do that? Did your, did your, did your conscience, your mind tell you that what you were doing was wrong? Yeah. I said, okay, well, when it does that, don't do it. Right. And so we had Mm -hmm. to teach him and walk him through. But now that they're older and they're more autonomous, (laughs) uh, man, once you get to those first five years or four years, even it's just, it's so worth it. Everything just starts exploding, right? Like all the good times, the memories just start happening one after another. And it's just, it's, it's perfect, man. I, I, I'm at the, the golden years, right? I know I'm in them and I'm enjoying them, but like, I, I can tell I'm in the golden years of my, my kid's life. And um, so I'm just, I'm just trying to be there for them. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I screw up all the time, but I'm humble and I love them. And I love them fiercely enough to tell them, Hey, look, dad screwed up. I'm sorry. And I give them hugs. And I, I you know, I, one of the things I do is I try to set rituals during sp- specific seasons and um, on a monthly basis. So like once a month, I'll take each of the kids out and I'll tell them, um, you know, we're going to go do something fun. You can pick it. It's kind of a yes day, so to speak. They can say whatever they want and we'll do it. Yeah. Right. And so like Bela always wants to go get a toy and she wants to go get some dinner or something. And Ben wants to go to the arcade and play video games. And so we do that. And so they all, they both have their own special time. And, but yeah, so we, we got a lot of things we've implemented since the second kid, but I don't know. My marriage has been on more on fire now than ever has. Um, I guess it's that because we've built everything so well and like we've come so far together. It's like, wow, we got through the hardest part, right? And now it's just enjoying. Yeah. So like dad's my one piece of encouragement for you is man, just get through the tough years and just enjoy the rest of them. Right. Like work on yourselves, but, but just know that every, every like section is just a, it's, it's a season. It's a chapter in the life. Right. And some of them are tough, but some are going to be amazing. And yep. you just have to be um, hopeful and, and have faith that it will be. All right. Well, let's take a break here. Okay. All right. That is it for part one. We will come back for part two and finish Brandon's story. Uh, in addition to talking about the rest of his story, there will be lots of lessons learned and uh, things that you can take and apply into your life. So we hope you enjoyed this first part of his story. Thank you for watching. Thank you for supporting us. And we will see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.